0: That song you hear playing on our way in on every episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is from a brand new album called Instrumental from Rick DeFonso. He is our guest. That's right. Uh, We want to congratulate you as well as welcome you, Rick. Marcus and I here. Marcus, good evening, good afternoon, and good night.
1: Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Hello.
0: (laughs) Rick, welcome to the podcast, and we have congratulations for you and uh, to us, too. Yeah.
2: It's good to be here.
0: Your music from Instrumental, which you've been working on, we'll talk about that in a second. But the music that you've been working on for this album for a while has been part of the podcast and just crossed 200,000 downloads, buddy. Whoa.
2: At Spotify rates, that would be, I think, $11. I think you might be <laughs> overestimating,
1: but but the yeah, fact no. that you can do that math in your head is very impressive.
0: Don't all DIY musicians have that software like embedded in a chip in their head, right?
2: Well, I think it's point zero zero three cents per stream. You did the multiplication so fast yeah. on that, like <laughs> I a computer speed. I'll out, <laughs> out there sitting with a calculator checking my figures. It's okay. <laughs>
0: Well, let's jump into the Imbalanced Time Machine and go back a few years to the beginning of this podcast. And Rick was putting some stuff out on the internet that he'd been working on for this new album. And we liked it, right? And we asked you, hey, can we use some of your songs on our podcast? Sure, absolutely. That's what he said then. And so now we have it officially, Marcus. It's on like officially on tape. That yeah. he gave us permission to do this. Otherwise, we're going to owe him eleven dollars.
1: <laughs> I want it, and I want it now. We'll Venmo you.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah that actually, was a couple of years ago, and it's just now. I've been very lazy about the whole thing. It's just now coming out as a full record, and some of the stuff dates back to the '90s. So it's you know it's something that's just sort of evolved over time a long time
1: were you reworking the stuff constantly during this time period well
2: I I collected things as I went along so over the years and a few things I reworked because I just wanted to do them a little better or I wanted to change the snare sound there's always things you want to change going back in retrospect you know records live forever so you kind of want to want to get it right but there were some things take a look inside for example there was something about that performance that i felt it shouldn't be tampered with that was from the early 90s It was from like 94 95 something like that so i left that in its original state some things i reworked and there were some newer things so it's been you know a process things i've been having in the back of my mind for 20 years or so I just finally decided to get off my ass and, uh, and put it out
0: now that song you hear at the beginning of the podcast every episode is called Bump in the Night And that's one of the songs that's been around
2: for a while. Tell us about that one. I did it in my basement at our house down the shore in in Belmar. It it just sort of grew out of a a percussion loop. Um, And I just added layer and layers and layers. And I I, I really liked it and decided to leave that one alone. I didn't rework that one at all. But these things just happen sometimes. And uh, when it does, I I kind of file them away and keep them for myself. Because I'm writing all the time. But I'm usually writing music for television and other industrial applications bowling alleys well
0: we definitely want to talk to you about that especially the bowling alley stuff but uh that's until
1: A- actually the- i do want to talk about the bowling alley stuff because i have distant cousins on my mom's side who are involved in the new jersey bowling association and very active oh, that's something to be fiercely proud of thank you <laughs> 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 well, since uh,
0: Marcus is pushing the Bowling Association, I was going to push for your album. People can find it on your website, rickdefonso.com uh, slash instrumental uh as emphasis on the mental part because knowing you uh for a long time i think that was a good idea to put the emphasis on the mental aspect yeah. of these songs some of them are quite manic uh, a couple of them we use uh the one that p- we play in the middle all the time
1: six to four
0: yeah six to four tunisia has become the uh, exit music like when we're done at the end of the episode and then uh uh the other one was tell me what you want that's so we use that when we're getting emails uh fan mail from some flounder as we call it these things things all are present throughout the episodes and and now we have more songs rick can we get permission from you on the air here to use those as well
2: absolutely there's another one i'm about to finish finally called out of your mind which is really wacky different time signatures and it's just all over the place i had a a great drummer sit in and play on it remotely hopefully there'll be a place for it somewhere in the show tell me what you want was an interesting thing that also is very old that was one of the first times I used drummer percussion loops in the 90s. and I used that same loop in every section uh, and treated it in a different way and like sort of glued them all together in a Frankenstein kind of approach. And, sounds cool. Besides
1: guitar, do you play any other instruments on this record?
2: I play them all, except for drums. Uh, in some cases, uh, in some cases I'm doing the drum programming and using loops and things like that. The drums that I don't play are either played by Tony Mora or Greg Morrow. Couple of good friends of mine that have really amazing home studios in nashville i call them up and they, they do me a solid and, and play on this stuff and we have fun working remotely but I which played- everybody's
0: been doing during the pandemic but it works even outside of pandemic setting for a lot of people who especially guys like you who have friends who are in different cities or all around the country or world
2: yeah strangely the the pandemic was good for a lot of musicians working out of the home hell of a way to make a living but they my, my Drummer Friends especially, uh, saw a definite uptick in their remote recording business. What about Tunisia? You haven't spoken
1: about that one yet.
2: Well, That's another one from, well, I'd say the early 2000s. And that also started with the percussion loop the, uh, that you hear in the beginning. Uh, and it just really inspired me. I put a synthesizer bass line that kind of reminded me of something Peter Gabriel would do. And then I, when I picked up the guitar, I just sort of went into Jimmy Page emulation mode. So it's kind of a mishmash of influences, all of whom I love, but that just sort of happened. These things just kind of happen. There's no sort of malice and forethought involved. It is like kind of happen, like capture it and then file it away and don't release it for 20 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, but all your friends who are listening in Philadelphia who know you a long time, they all just laughed like that, too. As long as some of those guitars behind you in the room there where you're uh, talking to us from down there in Florida.
2: Well, some of the guitars are quite a bit older than that, but uh, they're they're all very special to me. I've been recording with them for years and some of them touring with for a long time. They're, they're my children. There's that kind of an attachment? Except I beat my children.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Pete! Stop! <laughs> uh...
1: Pete uh, beats his children do you have a Rickenbacker hollow body in your collection
2: a hollow body 12 string yes I do Rickenbacker 6 string that I used uh, on a lot of the A's recordings that sound, has a really beautiful sound uh, Well, a lot of the A's recordings I used it uh, on CIA and electricity in particular the, the, the intro guitar and the solo guitar were played on the Rickenbacker 6 string How
0: many of your other guitars from the a's days do you still have in the uh, in the arsenal there uh
2: all but one i only i only had a couple of guitars in in those days
0: I want to talk about the a's because i grew up in philly and before i got to hang out on south street or around town you were part of a band that was on the radio man you were on Arista records you were the a's what was it like when you guys were kids coming together? Because that 60s scene that was pretty popular in Philly had kind of faded a little bit in rock and roll, and the 70s was a little bit different going into when you guys kind of set things on fire again.
2: Well, music in general was kind of bleak in the, the early to mid-70s, and in, uh, it, the disco versus punk kind of thing. Uh, right. yeah. We had grown up, all this had grown up except for Terry. We, he was like the, the newcomer to the band, but we had all grown up together. I was in my first band with Rocco when I was 11, Um I met Richard when I was 15. I think he was about 65 years old at that point. Uh, <laughs> all grown up together, and in 1977, we became Ye's. Well, it was the middle of the punk scene, but we were more new wavy than that. But we we came up through the bars and got sick of, you know, playing other people's songs and started to write and got serious about it. Late 78, I think we got signed and we started the record, the first record in uh, March of 79. It, it was just a whole new experience to go into a real deal studio. None of us had had much studio experience at all. And it was not in, at the level of uh, the New York studios that we were using to make the A's records. So it was like, a, like kids in a candy store. Darling. And I'll tell you when When the record came out, the first time I was driving down the street, and MMR played after last night, i would like, "Die!" I had to pull over. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> was, we had worked on the songs we played. It's a
0: dream, man. Right? I remember listening to it on MMR. It was it was the hot record when it first hit. Man, you guys were setting the thing on fire.
2: Yeah, it was it was chilling to, to, to achieve what we thought was
1: like world class success. <laughs> In a way, it was. When you got signed, do you remember the whole process leading up to it? How were you noticed? Nemperor, we got very close to a
2: deal with Nemperor Records. Uh, and I'm not sure. I'm. Clear. You have to forgive me because that was uh, just after the Civil War. So it was like a long <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pappy. Steampunk. I don't know what happened with Nemperor, but it did not work. And there was some, some mild interest from other labels. But for some reason, Clive Davis just sort of... Uh, latched onto us and, and saw or saw more, I guess, than, than anyone else did. Uh, that was should-
0: also a time when he was trying to do more rock and roll on the label that had been known for being huge in pop realms. But you were part of the, the rock change at Arista at that time, too, and we also- you had success uh, with the follow-up, A Woman's Got the Power, did much better nationally and, and, and for you guys as a band. What was that like, going from the first to the second record and having a hit and other people being interested in recording the song?
2: Well, the other people weren't interested in recording a song while we were together. Uh, That happened much later. But uh, Once Got the Power was a bigger turntable hit than the first record was. Um, It it got a lot of radio play, but neither record really sold. I wouldn't wouldn't call either of them a success, although we were on the Billboard radio charts. uh, And everywhere we played, we played to sold out crowds that just loved us, but nobody bought the record. It was uh, Uh people refer to it as the squeeze syndrome because I think this a similar thing had happened to them with a few of their records that everybody just adored them and went and went crazy for their live shows but in the, in the beginning I don't think they sold a whole lot of records and uh, certainly neither did we.
0: and what else was going on in town in Philly at that time besides what you guys were doing was uh Quedar around hazard around yet
2: and hazard was around forever the Hooters were starting up so I think Tommy Conwell happened just after I left uh, just after we split up. The review was around. Alan Mann had passed away. That was right around that time, I remember. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, a scene. I think we kind of, I don't want to break my arm, patting myself ourselves on the back, but we kind of blazed a, a bit of a trail.
1: we could dance all night to their music and do the dances about the hottest thing they have right
2: now. I um, made it possible for people to play original music in some of the local venues, and certainly some of the local bars, because we, we came out of that right, and, right. and no one was doing original music until we like sort of forced it down their throats. It's, it's tough to fire a band, fill in the place. with we, we'll <laughs> That's coffee, right. You know.
1: Did you get to play CBGBs during that time period? And what was it like and who did you share the stage with?
2: Once we shared with the Ramones, I think, and and we may have played, I think we played there by ourselves. And it's funny, I played there in like 10 or 12 years later in, in the early 90s uh with a band i was in with cy kernan from the fix the singer from the fix mm-hmm. we were showcasing some songs and i went to the dressing room and i think it was the same urine on the floor in the dressing room uh, that, when we played there in the early 70s it sure was man <laughs> was the fun. smell right
0: we talked about it in an episode about cbgbs when you went to the back oh, yeah you walked in that dressing room bathroom area it was like oh my god,
2: yeah mm-hmm. it was ripe but it was what a great place what a, a fun vibe it just it totally electric well actually we organized a bus trip for our fans uh, from philly they chartered they a bus and went up to new york to see us play cbs
0: if you were on that bus trip and you're listening we want to hear from you you send the email to imbalancehistory at gmail.com how to, how to get that in there because i want to hear from anybody who's listening to this episode
3: Uh, I was on that trip wow
0: hey you know i want to ask you how you get around to working with cindy lauper i know Chertoff was the producer he was working with the hooters and i know there's a connection there and william whitman was involved in all that too how do you end up being part of that whole thing Uh,
2: i was still living in philly at the time and with the a's were in their final moments um Uh and i had expressed a desire to move to New York and do sessions and uh, play on records and whatever jingles whatever I could you know get my grubby little hands on I I think both Rick and Bill thought I would be a good fit for some of the songs to play some guitars and they gave me a call and I went up and it it was a blast well no actually I just did overdubs on that record I don't think I played with the rhythm section I just went in and played guitars after the fact Uh, but Rick and and Bill Whitman especially after the band broke up made it possible for me to move to New York and I went up and Did some sessions and it was kind of terrifying because all of my virtually all of my recorded recording studio experience was with people I knew people had been in the band with and had worked on songs for a month to go up to New York City, where I didn't know any of the other players and I only knew the engineer. Uh, It was a little scary, but everybody just welcomed me. All the guys were really great, especially, uh, you may know Ralph Shuckett. He was from the Todd Rundgren Utopia, and he Mm -hmm. played in Clear Light and a bunch of other bands. He he was just a really great guy, and he just was a sweetheart, and he just made me feel really welcome and made what was otherwise a a nervous, I don't want to say terrifying, but a nerve-wracking experience. He made it very, very comfortable. Uh, Got sort of settled into that, and it became more second nature. But, they, but Rick and Bill, especially Bill, made it possible for me to do all that stuff. Bill got me involved in the Patty Smythe record and I joined the band and did the tours with her. And, right.
1: the sophie b hawkins album is that the damn i wish it was your lover record because i was playing that at my first radio job it is she, she was great
2: we she actually did that in a studio that i had managed for a little bit uh, in, in my sordid career in new york uh, called messina sound we, we did the record there and, and she was just great to work with and it was a great experience because i was at home it wasn't my studio but I, I ran it for a while and i was there every day So I was totally comfortable. And again, I knew all the players by that point. And and she was just great. She's just terrific. Damn. We're with
0: Rick DeFonso hanging out on the Imbalance history of rock and roll. Uh, Rick, we have a sponsor. It's a brewery in Hapro. And uh, by the way, in the early days, the A's would have kicked ass there. They would have been awesome there. They got a nice little stage so we're going to pause for the cause and come back and talk about more of your career, talk about more about your album, Instrumental. And I got to ask you if it's possible that I heard one of your tasty riffs when I was watching an episode of Friends today. That's what's coming up in the second half with Rick Defonso on the imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Well, it gets to be the holiday season, Marcus. You know, you start thinking about gathering with friends, and in a lot of cases, over a pint, or over Pennsylvania Distilled Spirits, some wine or cider gee where could we go how about our favorite it's crooked eye brewery right
1: in the heart of hatboro it's a great place to share memories with friends and hear live music as well
0: Speaking of live music, you can find out who's coming to play when on their Facebook page.
1: And as always, the beers are continually being updated. As
0: well as your favorites on tap at Crooked Eye. Right there in the heart of Hapro and in the heart of Delco out by you.
1: Yeah, a few miles down the road from me at Jamie's House of Music where you can see live music and grab a pint of your favorite Crooked Eye beer.
0: And if you're going into the brewery location in Hapro and you have a Crooked Eye fan in your life, stop by, have a pint, buy a gift card for the holidays, and stock up on Crooked Eye merchandise.
1: We know the holidays are always crazy, so if you want to slow down, make sure you stop by and make it Crooked Eye.
0: This is Battle of Britain from Instrumental, the new album from Rick Defonso. Alright, we're all refreshed and ready for more with Rick DeFonso, our guest here on the podcast this week. Actually, you're a guest every week, Rick. Uh, we were talking at the beginning about the songs from Instrumental, your new solo album, that is available at RickDefonso.com/slash instrumental. Those songs are heard every week here on the podcast. They uh, they have high familiarity and no burn because people keep coming back for that tasty riff of bump in the night at the beginning of the podcast, so, you
2: know. Cool. it's Spotify good. RickDefonso.BandCamp.com, too. So, oh, okay. The right bandcamp, from. man. Remember that time at
0: Bandcamp
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah one once i was playing the flute i think with uh <laughs> hey did you uh ever do movies
0: did you ever do any riffs and in, in parts in movies you know the, the thing where you're sitting there with the head i have a song
2: in, a, in an al pacino movie called cleaner i believe Uh there's like three or four films that have used little bits of my music oh, wow. there's an episode of the sopranos that uses some of my music which is was really strange because i was a A devout devotee of that show. I just watched it all the time. I watched every episode a bunch of times and I didn't recognize my music because what they chose to do was it was a peace of mind that started off with drum machines and loops and synthesizers, kind of like just stuff you've heard a million times. It was nothing unique. And about 45 seconds in, my guitar comes in and then you go, oh, that's that's me, you know, I I would have recognized that, but they only used the first 30 seconds of it. So it went right over my head. It's like, it just got right past me. But how do you
0: find out other than hearing it like that? How do you well, find out? It was,
2: and do my BMI track my BMI statement? They, they just showed, <sighs> it showed it up. I like, the Sopranos. What are they? And then Friends started to show up. And I thought, when did Friends ever use my music?
0: I swear to Christ, I'm I, I'm flipping through having lunch, and I get on an episode of Friends, and I hear this little
2: from the one scene to the other, and I go, that's fucking Rick.
0: No. I swear, I thought it was your riff because I know that you had one of your credits. So,
2: and now I'm seeing Jimmy Kimmel and Saturday Night Live, and you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's all over the place. But I don't, I, I don't recognize anything. Uh, Shameless. Well, I, just, uh, sorry. Shameless,
1: Shameless is using your music. Yeah. My wife loves that show, so I have to watch it now and see if I can recognize any of your riffs.
2: At some point, at some over like the years, Oprah used a piece of my music. Wow stunning well at
0: least you know they're working hard for you over there mm-hmm. at BMI bro you know I mean it says here good morning America yeah uh, Monday Night Football what? I mean how, mm-hmm. how do you end up How's your riff end up getting there do you know
2: well those places those shows end up getting them from the the, the libraries mm-hmm. and the producers that I work with you know, I just never know where it's going to end up but Fox I I did a, a little a small library for them directly. And They use that on football and and all their sports programming. I I expect that. But otherwise, I just never know where it's going to be. I got to say that the most filling moment for me in my career was when I lived in New Jersey, calling Comcast customer support to see why my internet was crapping out. And I heard a piece of my music on hold.
1: That is funny.
0: Happened into Vats of Corporate Cash Rick. I have (laughs) arrived.
1: Yeah. You were also on When Sharks Attack and Mighty Morphin (laughs) Power Rangers.
2: Babe Winkleman's fishing hour. Don't forget Babe. (laughs) Okay, forget Babe. That was
3: a big fat fish, too. Now this is where it's time for me to simply shut
0: up and give you all a chance to watch. Big fish. Maybe over 48. Yeah, it's a great fish. So I've seen my dad pretty excited about a lot of things, whether it's a big buck or a nice bass or whatever.
2: Really big fish. Had to drop it
3: back three times to get her to hit. You want to net this one.
0: Just as he got the words out, I wish there was a 49-inch pike and it slammed his bait. Nice fish, But now we understand how that happens, uh, for a lot of those things. Is that, is that different when it's a show like Grey's Anatomy?
2: No idea it was going to show up there either. My wife watches; oh. you know, she didn't recognize anything, but she uh, she doesn't really hear all the production music I crank out because there's huge volumes of it over the last thirty years. There's actually like three thousand pieces of music that they're out wow. there,
0: and it takes care of business, and that's a beautiful thing because you guys have uh, made the plan that so many do. You escape to sunny Florida. You got a nice spot there. You got a pool. You got the cage when the, when the mosquitoes are out. You can hide from them. You got the whole thing figured out
2: down there. Don't you? yeah it's great we're actually on a little canal that has turtles and otter and tilapia and
0: well i'm glad we covered all that about you know all those different little bits and how that happens because i don't think a lot of people know that rick and uh it's really cool it's really cool thanks for sharing maybe you can share some connective tissue for us how you end up going from being the studio guy in new york being on a few albums that we talked about already right how do you end up in the bleeding hearts band that goes to Berlin to perform The Wall. Well, in
2: 1988, <clears throat> Roger was working on the second iteration of his Amused to Death record. He had done what he thought was the whole record, and he decided that he really wasn't happy with the guitar playing. He had worked with a, a good friend of mine that I had a thousand jingles with, and the Cindy Lauper record and some other records named Peter Wood, a British keyboard player. And he called Peter and said, do you know any good guitar players and and peter was kind enough to recommend me and i got a phone call from roger saying would you like to come over and work on the record Uh, i was supposed to go over for a couple of days two three days maybe and replace some of the stuff i went over and we hit it off right away and we played a bunch of we played a bunch of snooker before we even set up and started playing guitar he had a giant snooker table which is a a billiards table for those who aren't familiar with it
0: but it's Uh, a different game lad
2: it's a way different game there's still balls and everything but a, the pockets are narrow and it's a giant table and it's just that the strategy is different and he taught me the game and within three or four games I was competitive with him and he said oh right man let's 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 go so because he's a very competitive spirit uh, but we, we overdubbed it, uh, did, uh, I replaced some of the guitars on the record for a few days and I think what really clinched it was he invited me into the house because the studio was attached to the house Right. And, uh, he invited me into the house for dinner one night to meet the wife and kids and everything and I, I went in and the dog came up to me and just loved me and the kids were very cool they were you know, very happy and they were, they were bubbly and I love kids and I love animals and the, the kids and the dog liked me so it was like right then you're staying <laughs> Another ten passed the did sniff test. The <laughs> great. And I, I did, the, you know, basically the whole record. And then in the early, it never came out, or it hadn't came out at that point. Uh, and in the early nineties, he decided that it wasn't thematic enough. That it was a collection of songs, and they're great songs, but it didn't tie together like The Wall did, or you know, his other works. It wasn't a theme, so he reworked it again, and Patrick Leonard produced. And they brought in that bastard, Jeff Beck, and he replaced all my guitars, (laughs) except one. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you got to the wall? Well, no, that's how I got to do that record. Uh, And then then two years later, in in 90, we were actually, uh, we went, uh, did a road trip with DiBella in Jamaica. He did his remote show from Jamaica, and we were in Jamaica for uh, a week doing the show. And we got home. And I put my bags down and the phone rang, and it was Roger saying, would you like to come to Europe and play the wall at the Berlin Wall? Because we had got along so well and he liked my playing, it was time to start to actually do this live show. Jeff Beck had not replaced my guitars at that point, while were beautiful. Right, right, okay. Good, good for, it's good for
0: context to know that. Timing is everything, right?
2: He did ask Eric Clapton to do the solo Uncomfortably Numb, and Eric turned him down. Thank God, because then I got to do it. But- yeah
0: how chaotic though was it though you're getting this call you're going to do this concert the wall has come down uh, roger yeah. thrown the gauntlet down years before with Redbeard down in texas right he said if they ever tear down the wall i'll go play it. Yeah, yeah sure i'll do the wall again there yeah. and then it happened and he had to actually you know step up and uh, how crazy is it all of a sudden the swirling vert- vortex is going on and then suddenly here you are in the middle of it and you're the fucker on the wall playing comfortably numb
2: Yeah. It it was a really, really thrilling time. Obviously the show was the biggest, it still may be the biggest in history, but the biggest audience, the biggest stage, the biggest cranes in the world were manipulating the the biggest puppets in the world. And it was like big, big, big. Uh, And the sense of history just flying into Berlin for the first time thinking that, you know, 50 years ago, this was filled with fighter planes and bombs dropping. The show itself was at a place where the berlin wall split into two so there, and there was like maybe a hundred acres between the two walls and that's where the show is at putz Stammerplatz. because the wall had just come down uh they had a mine sweep to make sure there was no landmines or anything and they found i don't know a hundred thousand rounds of ammunition and they found a couple of deactivated mines and the mine sweeper went clung and found this big hunk of metal they dug it up and it was a, a cover to a shaft leading down to a bunker that they didn't know about. There was murals all over the walls, Nazis with wings flying through the sky and lightning bolts coming out of their eyes. And it, it was just an immense sense of history. It, it was just thrilling on every level, not only to, to work with the people who were involved in the show, but just to be there at that time and place when the wall had just come down. They had left part of the wall up uh, as the security for backstage. They, to keep the uh, the fans out of the backstage area was right the a chain link fence on one side and the berlin wall on the other. Was- he didn't
0: have to build in so far like he did in long island in the 80 right it was already there all he had to do is you know fence it all it's unbelievable, unbelievable. and i've been dying to ask you about this stuff for years he,
2: after the show he tracked me down he wanted, he wanted to ask me um what i thought as the colonist in the band the token colonist <laughs> Everybody else was British. I was the token colonist. And he called me. I was in a session in New York, and he he called my house, and Debbie told him where I was, and he called in and said, is Saturday Night Live a good idea for us, dear boy? And I said, "Oh, yeah, it's it's completely your audience. I think it'd be great. And they they thought about it for a while, and he decided not to do it. And instead, it was Sinead O'Connor with the episode where she tore up the picture of the Pope.
1: What? In the victory... Of
2: good over evil.
1: Fight the real enemy.
0: Yes, that was supposed to be the That's night. That's crazy.
1: Oh. Yes, that is crazy. I've got a couple questions about the wall as well. Thomas Dolby was there. What was he like to work with as a colleague? Because he is absolutely brilliant, and he is the one interview I bombed harder than anybody else because until, of how brilliant this,
2: he is. Until this interview. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> damn, that will go past. I'm sorry. No, uh, great. You can't I, leave an opening
2: like that for DeFonzo. Dude, dude don't I walked right into, into that, that one. You wheel. had
1: to do yeah. it. You had to do it.
2: Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> i actually had uh, no contact with him he just learned his bits and since he wasn't on stage with us he was dangling from right. the biggest crane in the world and that god
0: i was thinking about the same thing like because the because the hooters played mm-hmm. and i think cindy Lauper and uh, performed or uh, were part of the you know performing troupe that was part of the whole thing uh did you see any of those guys or any of the other people who were in the other
2: units so well, to speak? Uh, we rehearsed with cindy on site in berlin a bit um We didn't rehearse with the Hooters at all. We rehearsed for months in London (laughs) at a a place called Gnomus. It it, it was this old, two hundred year old, five hundred year old building, thick stone walls, and in the room next to us was deep purple. And every day we heard. <laughs> the guest artists rehearsed there with us, so we rehearsed for a week on site in Berlin and with all the guest artists. And they all showed up in various stages of preparedness. Brian Adams was phenomenal. He he sang two songs, and Young Lust is very wordy. It's, it's you know, it was not an easy thing. He showed up the first second of rehearsal. He knew everything dead on. Uh, Dan Morrison, on the other hand, uh, we didn't see till the afternoon of the show and there was speculation whether he was going to show up. And and he read the lyrics off of uh, Sheets on the Floor. He was he didn't kind of know the song.
0: All I could tell you is that version became iconic because partially because of it being in the sopranos as well.
2: Yeah, it was it was a big surprise. Well, oh, con- especially
0: considering you saw that he wasn't very prepared. That is amazing. Well, we didn't see him all week.
2: You know, everyone else came to rehearsals. Thomas Dolby you know, not that I think but was not at rehearsals because he knew his bit. And I think he was lip syncing anyway. I, I seriously doubt he was miked. But again, he was flying from a, a crane. There was no real, you know, that was his gig. There was no re- yeah. you know, no way to rehearse that. Well, Carrick was phenomenal. In general, everybody was just yeah. great.
1: When you were looking out at the crowd, did you see anything wild? Did you see them trying to tear parts of the wall down? Like, what kinds of things did you see
2: in the crowd? Uh, I didn't see much after a couple minutes into the show because they started building the wall in front of me. But the solo was comfortably numb. The wall was 70 feet high, and there was a scaffolding behind it uh, that I had, I think, a little over a minute to get from my place on stage right up the scaffolding into the top of the wall under the platform. And I got up there. I had rehearsed it many times and watched them build the... uh, because it was scary it was eight by ten four by eight sheets of three quarter inch plywood over some bridge girders I, I, yikes you know, 70 feet in the air before they put the railing around the edges of the, the, the platform i would go up there and the wind would blow and i'd be scared to death because it was just you know, i had I kind of numb myself to, i don't have a fear of heights but it was scary During the show, I got up there and looked out, and it, I was in the dark. And it was just a sea of people as far as you could see, with lights swirling over them, and, everything, and you just couldn't see the end of the crowd. There was half a million people there. And my moment comes, and the solo starts, and the spotlights hit from below and beside me, and from the, one of the, the biggest cranes in the world again, all hit me at the same time, and the audience goes, Wah! And I just—it it was a moment that. Will we'll, I'll never ever ever forget it. It was just oh, it was all I could do to keep from jumping out of my skin and remember what I was supposed to play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And I, I felt it and it got to be really like you know, I felt the energy. It was like I wasn't scared anymore. It was just like I could do this every night. Let's let's go. And that was the the, the sad part of it was we rehearsed for months, three months in Europe and a, a week uh, or ten days in Berlin when we did the show, and it was over. Well, now, now, what are you going to do? And that was another thing that Roger had asked me like, weeks after the show, in the phone call that were, in which he asked me if we should do Saturday Night Live. He said there was a chance that we could do it in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, and LA. There were very few venues in the world that would hold a, a show that size, even even if we paired it, if he pared it down a little bit. Uh, but so there was talk of doing a few, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, I think we should do the Dark Side of the Moon on the Moon." What did he say? (laughs) He had about the same reaction you did. Did he laugh? No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, was, I, I was waiting to
0: hilarious. see what he said because I I, yeah. I I can't imagine that he wouldn't have laughed and you know punched you maybe and then laughed and then said okay I get it yeah. I know but hey look he he, he kind of did serialize it man he he uh he did dark side on a tour he did the wall and then took it outside to what I call unhealthy excess and one of the greatest concerts surpassing the original wall concert which I saw at the Long Island mausoleum in, in
2: 1980 was yeah it,
0: it was got to go well, dude, that's a moment that you don't forget. That's yeah. a moment that you feel your whole life, yeah, and that's, down to your core, and it's partly it. the, the 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 end. You know, I mean, you've gone on since these ensuing thirty plus years. You've done so much. And now you got a new album out. You're enjoying your life with your primary girl forever down there in Florida. You two been together since you were we kids, right? And
2: Forty does, five years together now. Oh, awesome. How does she put up with you? That's all I wanted. every day is a a joy i'm i'm a ray of fucking sunshine yes you are yes you are
1: billy guy a ray of fucking sunshine
2: (laughs) (laughs) i met her we met at a bar in burlington new jersey called the anchorage which daily the also came out of there and uh, some other players this bar was sort of like a little cultural mecca for the bands that weren't making any money and i was on stage and i saw her in the audience and i said oh i like her she's pretty During her break I went up to her and said, Would you like to dance? And she said, Yes. And I said, Okay, go ahead.
1: All no, time. no, you did. But not. But um, on
0: boom! And forty-five years later, he's—he'll be here all the week.
2: She's Keep a True, take a care of of
0: dick. <laughs> but then uh, we danced. I
2: mean, and we fell in love, and the rest uh, is. Oh,
1: that's hilarious.
0: Well, Rick, thanks for taking time out of your uh, busy day. Uh, I know you had some gardening work you had to get back to. We're
2: in the palm trees.
0: Yeah. Well, you know that—that's tough too. The breeze in the palm trees at night makes a sound that's so hard to listen to. You know. <laughs> One of the worst places to be in a pandemic. Virtual paradise in the United States, the oh. Western Gulf Coast. But thank you for taking yeah, some you, time Mitch. out of your busy day, pal. And don't forget, check it out, rickdefonzo.com. That's D I F O N Z O.com slash instrumental. Check out his new album, Instrumental. You're a fan of the podcast. You already know half the music. Go buy it and support our friend Rick in his retirement years down there in sunny Wow.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Love you, man.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, Mark, that went off the checklist for the podcast, Marcus. We thought about this a long time ago. Mentioned it, I think, a couple times on the podcast, having Rick on. And here it is. We finally got him on the uh, Zoom from Florida.
1: I remember talking about getting Rick to be on our podcast and having the conversation with you about all of the cool stories that he was going to be able to share of his time back in those days in rock was i lying what was going on no you weren't lying at all i want to get him on again to talk more about that time period because of all the things that happened in the change Boy. the only
0: person more happy to hear you say that than me is rick because he said to me the next day after we sat down and recorded like i got more stuff to talk about and i'm like well you're gonna have to come back son so thanks to Rick down in Florida. and Thanks to Deb for letting him take some time to play with us on the podcast.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And if you got to see Rick and his band anytime during those days and have any stories, please share them at imbalancedhistory@gmail.com.
0: At or if you were at the wall in Berlin, we want to talk to you on this podcast. So send us an email at imbalancedhistory@gmail.com. At That's going to do it from the Dark Doc Studios. I'm Ray Kub. I'm
1: Marcus Goldman.
0: Thanks to Rick rick DeFonso, our guest on this episode of the imbalanced history
1: of rock and roll
3: it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football